virtual conference this year. My name is Ginger Cameron. I am an epidemiologist and I'm currently working as a professor at Purdue Global as well as um, working as an epidemiologist through this pandemic. So I wanted to take some time today to talk with you about COVID-19, what we know about the virus at this point and things that we still um, need to do and where we're going to go. Just to give you a little bit of a recap of what has happened over the last year, in on January 30th of 2020, the director of the World Health Organization declared the coronavirus outbreak a public health emergency of international concern. And a normal thing to ask at that point would be, what does that mean? And so I wanted to provide you some background information about what a public health crisis is or what some, the qualifications for something to be called a public health emergency or crisis. And so there's three criteria, and they are one, it has to be an acute event requiring an immediate response, check. Number two, it has to be expected to imminently lead to death, infectious disease morbidity, property destruction, or population displacement, check. And number three, it has to overwhelm the capacity of local systems to do their job of maintaining the community's health. And so those are the three criteria that were used to make the decision that uh, COVID-19 or coronavirus would be qualified as an emergency or crisis. So let's talk a little bit about the virus. When we first had the development of this disease or the pandemic, we certainly did not know very much about the um, coronavirus SARS-CoV-2. And over the course of time, we've learned a considerable amount. Certainly, there is still a lot for us to learn. But I want to just take a look at some of the things that we do know. We know, for example, that there's two names that people have been using in association with the uh, virus and the disease and that's because they're two different things the virus has one name and then the disease caused by it has a different name and we do this for a whole host of reasons but one example is because sometimes multiple viruses can actually lead to or cause the same disease so um, meningitis is a great example it can be caused by a bacteria or a fungus or a virus so when you have um, different viruses leading to the same disease, you need to know the source of the germ, right? So if you are gonna end up with meningitis, it's very important to the practitioner to know whether you have viral meningitis or bacterial meningitis. The treatment is gonna be different. Um, some of the symptoms may look a little bit different initially in severity, things of that nature. So we just need to know which one we're dealing with so we know what we are treating. And so it's not always appropriate to have, it's not appropriate to have a disease have the same name as the germ. So in this case, COVID-19 is the name of the disease, and that is actually assigned by the World Health Organization through what we are familiar with as practitioners as the ICD, so the International Classification of Diseases. And that's how it gets its name. 
The virus itself also will be uh, is named by an international committee, the International Committee on Taxonomy of Viruses, ICTV. And the virus is has been named SARS-CoV-2. So it belongs to the family of coronaviruses, which is why you sometimes hear it called coronavirus, you sometimes hear it called COVID, and you sometimes hear it called SARS-CoV-2, which can be very confusing, but we're actually, um, again, looking for the specificity. If you're a virologist, you're going to want to um, be studying the virus itself, looking at the components and structure of the virus in order to better develop diagnostic testing, um, medications, treatments, etc. And so you're focused on the virus and not the disease, whereas other practitioners are going to be more focused on the disease and not as focused on the actual structure of the virus. So let's talk about some COVID facts. First, we know that the virus is an RNA virus, and that's important to us because RNA viruses actually mutate at a faster rate than DNA viruses, and that makes it a little bit harder to develop vaccines that are lasting because of the mutation of the virus itself. So that's a, a factor. We also know that it spread primarily through respiratory droplets. So what that means is when you're talking, breathing, coughing, sneezing, singing, shouting, cheering on your favorite team, you're expelling respiratory droplets, air that has these tiny little microscopic droplets of water on it that the virus is nestled into those. A lot of them are really big and fat and they will drop to the ground fairly quickly and they don't travel too far. But some of them are much smaller and they can actually travel a greater distance. So in general, we know that they travel a, roughly six feet, right? This is why we make the recommendation that you stay six feet apart. But there are records of them traveling further. We have seen through research and in studies that they can potentially travel further than that in certain instances, particularly that are advantageous. I like to think of it as bubbles. If you've ever blown bubbles with a little wand, you stick the wand down in the bubbles and then you blow through the wand and the bubbles come out and they come out in all different sizes and shapes. Well, maybe not so much shapes, but all different sizes and they'll float off into the air and occasionally some of them pop right away, drop to the ground. Some of them, the air will catch them just right and they will float quite a distance and you can sit and kind of watch them dance along on the air. And that is really what we're seeing with COVID-19 as well. You just think of it the same way. Then when you're having larger exhalations, so you're blowing harder um, because you're shouting or singing or yelling or sneezing or coughing, then that tends to project those droplets further and give them a little bit more force and even expel more of them so you have a higher volume coming out. So this is an important thing to recognize because some people, when they hear that a disease is airborne, they tend to think that that means that it's just floating around in the air at random and you don't need a sick person to be around because this is just in the air, the air is contaminated. And that's not really what we mean. We actually mean that those respiratory droplets have become aerosolized and meaning they're very, very small and are easy um, to they can stay in the air for longer periods of time. And we've actually seen this in the research from the very beginning in certain circumstances. 
So there's still some discussion as to what, whether or not that is happening in um, common everyday life. Probably by the time you're listening to this, that question will have been answered. Um, and again, the science is leaning toward the fact that, that that is probably happening. It can also be found in stool and semen. It can be contagious for up to um, five days prior, but what we're really seeing now is about two days. Two days prior to any illness or onset of symptoms, um, we're seeing that most people are contagious at about that time frame. And then for up to seven days after recovery. It can take up to six weeks to recover, and we're gonna talk a little bit later about people that we call long haulers that are sick for even longer periods of time after that. So the recovery can be very lengthy with the virus. Some people, it's not. Some people get sick, they're better within a few days, sometimes 10 days, um, but then other people seem to linger a little bit longer. Viral load can be present in your body from 15.6 days all the way up to 49.4 days. We've seen several cases where people had viral load. Now, viral load means that there's enough of the virus in your body that we can detect that with testing. And we have seen several cases where people have had um, extended periods of time between when they had known exposure and when they had uh, their viral load, and in, in some cases, incubation period even lasting, uh, we've seen at least one case of 30-day incubation. Now, again, that is not the norm, but it's something to be aware of as a possibility. An average ventilation time is 20 to 30 days, meaning if you end up on a ventilator, on average, people are ending up on a ventilator anywhere from 20 to 30 days. And that's significant because in our um, in medicine, we typically know that the longer someone's on a ventilator, the more complex the case becomes and the more difficult it is when they're taken off that ventilator and the more complications that it go along with that. So that creates some long-term problems for um, patients coming off of ventilators, um, one of which is sometimes the, the amount of time it takes for them to come out of a coma or to re really regain consciousness and awareness um, and become lucid again. And so we're seeing some longer than expected times there, which makes patient care more challenging and difficult. Some additional things that we know about the virus are that pets can get it. Now, we weren't really sure about this in the beginning. We saw some isolated incidents, the dog in Hong Kong, the large cats at the New York Zoo, um, a few pet cats that tested positive, but we weren't really sure what that situation was. But just recently, we have had enough research and studies come in to say your pets can get it, so we need to protect them as if they are a member of the family. And we now have evidence that pets can also spread it to members of the house. So again, if your pet does test positive, then you wanna take the same precautions you would for a family member who tested positive. We are now also aware that some people are having long-term extended issues with COVID-19. Even people who had relatively mild cases of the virus are developing long-term consequences related to fatigue, depression, um, having trouble re, uh, starting back with exercise again, and experiencing just an overall just not feeling great with some heart possible heart problems, possible onset of diabetes, 
um, possible onset of some other chronic conditions. So in some individuals, it's creating some significant long-term health problems. And by long-term, we mean exceeding the three to, that three to six week guidelines. Some people we've seen as far as 12 weeks out. Obviously, we're still learning a lot about the chronic, possible chronic conditions that may be associated with COVID as people are moving further and further from their initial um, bouts of illness. We also had some misunderstandings about children early on, and we weren't really sure, can children carry it? Can children not carry it? Are they um, particularly susceptible? Are they not? Can they not get it? And so what we have seen is that in young children ages zero to five, the age we would typically think to be the most vulnerable, they actually seem to do okay with it and not getting as severe of instances as the rest of us. Beyond five, then we're starting to see in that six to eight age group is still having some protection, but not quite as much as the zero to fives. And then beyond eight, it is um, evening out a little bit. They can get the disease and they can spread the disease. And we had a recent study just came out of India that said children are actually really efficient in spreading it to other children. So they can definitely get it and spread it, but they're not seeing the same level of severity that we um, are seeing in young adults and middle-aged adults, and then of course, older adults. So that's a positive. We also have seen some evidence of what we call super spreaders, which indicates that where we would expect that each person that got COVID would give it to about three other people, we're seeing some people that far exceed that number. With as many as 65, we've seen an individual spread it to up to 65 additional cases. So again, another um, study just came out of India that suggested super spreaders are actually more of the norm than the exception. And that study suggested that super spreaders are actually the ones spreading it and that 60% um, of all spread comes from super spreaders, which represent only about 8% of the people that are infected. So if you think about that for just a second, you're saying that of all the people that have COVID, only 8% of them are actually spreading the disease and they are spreading it to the vast majority of people. So that is a pretty shocking um, finding of course, that was one study. It was a large study, but it was one study. Um, so we would need a little bit of additional information until we know that is for sure true, but certainly an interesting finding from that study. And then of course, we've recently discovered that reinfection is possible. So right now, looking at the virus, we think that people have immunity for about four months if they catch it. And then um, it is possible for them to get it again. So that definitely plays a, has an impact on whether uh, how the vaccine is going to work, the types of um, mitigation processes that we undergo, and the way that we move forward with trying to tackle the disease overall. Perhaps one of the most interesting things to me about the virus itself is that it seems to look a little bit different in different types of people. So we're seeing slightly different presentation from children, young adults, and older adults. Not so much in symptoms, although there is some variation in symptoms, certainly, but in 
what exactly it's doing inside the body, what exactly it's attacking. And so again, with children, we've seen a lot of uh, abdominal pain, gastrointestinal symptoms. We have seen some cardiac inflammation. And then we have seen MISC-C, which is this inflammatory illness that's coming up as a result of exposure to COVID, which is unusual. In younger adults, we've seen strokes, which is unexpected and certainly not something you would you would anticipate in a regular everyday practice. And then in older adults, we're seeing confusion, loss of balance, and in some cases, almost a euphoria that they're experiencing, which sometimes makes it more difficult to identify what's happening. So what have we done? The approach that we have taken has actually been a topic of great discussion around both the United States and the world as people have weighed in on both sides of what we've done and whether or not we've done it well. And I always like to tell people, you know, we can look back and see, well, this is what we should have done differently, but we have to make the decisions that we have based on the information that we have. And some of what we have done is built off of what historically has been done in these types of situations. So I just wanna kind of provide a little bit of an overview of the approach we took and why we took that approach. If you go back to 1918, in the Spanish influenza outbreak, which was also a pandemic of significant magnitude, you can see here are two different epidemic curves, Philadelphia on the left and New York on the right. And you can see that Philadelphia's curve is very tall and very peaked. They waited eight days after they began to have deaths from the Spanish influenza before they began to socially distance. And so you can see what their outbreak looks like, tall spike, but a relatively shorter duration. When you look at New York, New York actually began social distancing before they had any um, significant disease in the city and then before anybody had died. And they, they started that 11 days prior. And so you can see they have a shorter curve that's a little more rounded and a little more stretched out. So it lasted for a little bit longer, but they, it wasn't nearly as severe and not as many people died. So when you look at the death rates, Philadelphia had 748 deaths per 100,000 at 24 weeks within to the pandemic, and New York had 452 deaths per 100,000. So significantly less deaths because they acted sooner. This was the foundational knowledge that was used to build out the plan for our COVID response. The idea was, the picture on the left shows you the number of people who would get infected, and then the cup on the right shows you the number of people that we could treat. So in one month, we got the pitcher full of water full of people that would need to be treated, but we could only accommodate the number in the cup. So the idea was to control the flow so that the cup didn't overflow and we had all of these people needing treatment and they wouldn't be able to get treatment. But we knew making that decision would prolong the disease itself, right? We were going to spread it out and let that come in at a slower rate. So we knew that it would um, certainly slow down the rate at which we were experiencing it. So here's a look at the deaths 
How did it work, right? Did this, uh, this approach work? And if you measure that based on deaths, I put together the numbers from May through September so that you could see how the deaths were affected in that time frame. And prior to May, the numbers were even higher, but starting in May, and the, these are just the ones I put into the chart, um, 40,000 deaths for the month of May. And now in September, we only had 16,000. That's a tremendous difference in overall death rate and a great reduction in the overall death rate. And it gave us time to figure out what kind of treatments worked, to get a game plan together, to kind of spread things out so we weren't overwhelmed, and to learn some things about the virus and the disease that we didn't know in the beginning. So let's talk about a few of the harder concepts, a little bit more confusing parts of what's been going on through the pandemic, things that have really caused some confusion um, and consternation. First is the idea of how to define a case. This sounds like it would be super easy, like you have it, you don't have it, but this is actually a little bit of a complex concept. In fact, when I teach epidemiological concepts to students, I train them on this. This is probably one of the things that they make the most mistakes on. And so I try to really emphasize the importance of it. Now, of course, in the midst of the pandemic, it's been really easy for people to see and understand why this is so critical. It's important to note that every country gets to define a case for themselves. This is not something that's done. A lot of people think the World Health Organization says, here's the criteria to count someone as a COVID case, or that the United States has a clear case definition for the entire country. And that's not entirely true. Generally speak, well, for sure, across countries, right? Nation to nation, each nation has their own definition for what is included in a case, as it should be. Generally speaking, in the United States, when there's an outbreak, it's not of this magnitude. So it's in a smaller scale. And so people make those decisions maybe at the county level, at the state level. Um, in a case like this, where we're working across the whole country, there is an effort to have a coordinated case definition. But as you can also imagine, that has to change over time. So what we knew in January when we first started tracking cases compared to what we know now is certainly different. And there is still some flexibility in the reporting structure of that so that counties may report it um, by county, they may report it by zip code, they may report it by, um, you know, if you live in one county but you're diagnosed in another county, there are factors that go into that. So there's some variance in the case reporting. But there are essentially three categories of cases. There are suspected cases. So this is the person who has symptoms and says, hmm, I think I might have COVID. So they call up their doctor and say, I, you know, I'm experiencing these symptoms. I think I may have COVID. At that moment, they become a suspected case. So the doctor can say, I suspect you may have COVID, so let's get you tested. So from that point until you come in to see the doctor and or get tested, you are a suspected case. Once you have met with the physician, they look at you, review your um, case, review your symptoms, and do a test. 
then they can make a judgment that you are probably have COVID. Once they've done an exam, they can use their clinical judgment to say, yep, you probably have COVID. Right now we have serious problems with the testing, sensitivity and specificity, and it's not uncommon to get false negatives. And so with the number of false negatives that are happening, and a lot of that is very much associated with the timing of the illness, the quality of the perform, how well the test is performed, the quality of the test itself. And so physicians will say, you might have come back negative, but I know you have COVID. Or they may say, well, it's going to take us two weeks to get the test results, but it, I, I feel very confident that you have it. And so we're going to move forward. So then you become a probable case. If the results come back that say you're negative, then you're removed from that. You're not a probable case. If the result, unless the doctor says, no, I'm sure you have it, then he can leave you in the probable case pile. You move into the confirmed cases when your test results come back as positive. So we have suspected, probable, and confirmed cases. Now, you are not going to get counted twice or even three times. You're not going to be counted as a suspected, as a probable, as a confirmed. Think of it as a game piece that moves around the board, right? So you move around, your piece isn't counted at each station. Also, some states are not reporting probable cases at all, and that's their prerogative as a state, and some states are. Official numbers that you see are generally confirmed case counts, but there are some distinctions. So sometimes you'll look at a case count that includes probables, and sometimes you'll look at ones that do not. And so it's just important to know which one that you're looking at. But there is reasoning behind that, and it's not um, chaotic. There is a process and reasoning. And in order to be considered a probable case, you do have to have had a physician examine you and use their clinical judgment to make that decision. The next big point of confusion seems to be over determining cause of death. So I've heard a lot of people say everybody's getting um, coded as a COVID death. If you die from anything, it can be in a car accident, they're going to code you as a COVID death. And I want to reassure you that that's actually not happening. The number of deaths in the United States that are being attributed to COVID is about 5 to 8%, depending on the month and where along the way in the outbreak you're looking. Early on, it was a little bit higher, more towards the 8%, and in some of the better months, it's been as low as 5%. But 8% of the total deaths in the United States being COVID-related does not constitute everything, right? So it, it's mostly because there's confusion associated with how this happens. So the World Health Organization actually establishes how cause of death protocol works across the world so that we're all using the same basic principles. This all aligns with ICD-10 coding, which um, if you're a practitioner, you're very familiar with ICD-10 coding. And we use these codes to identify cause of death. And these are associated with what actually caused you to die. So yes, if you are a diabetic and you develop COVID and end up hospitalized and die from COVID, we're going to log COVID-19 as the cause of death. And we're also gonna put diabetes as a contributing factor. Death certificates actually list 
all of the contributing factors. So it's not like they're going to say this person had COVID and ignore all of the other things. This is why we're able to say how many people had comorbidities and the fact that these particular comorbidities contribute to the likelihood that you would die because we have tracked that and we those things are all listed. There's also a process that these cause of death uh, or death certificates go through and there's a significant delay. So if you live in Tennessee and um, you die from COVID and they have your death certificate, it'll actually go through a series of people to review that and then it'll be sent off um, to the state and then the state will submit it to the CDC for official um, documentation and then that is input into a database there. And there's a serious lag in the amount of time that it takes for it to go through all that that process. In addition, the um, each state kind of handles the way they route those a little bit different. So some states will save them all up and send them in once a month. Other states will send them in at the end of a week or um, in real time. So when you go to look at official death record information, there's always a lag between that information and the live numbers that you're seeing come out of the um, pandemic. And that is to be expected simply because of the administrative process. The live numbers coming out are those that, again, are being reported in real time, and they are, but they are not going through that process of verification. Finally, one of the um, biggest things that I think is confusing for people is the difference between risk mitigation and risk elimination. Both of these concepts absolutely have their place in epidemiological approaches. And sometimes we really are after risk elimination, eliminate the risk so that it isn't there. But a lot of times that isn't practical. And so we aim for risk mitigation. And risk mitigation is the idea that we are going to identify the risk and then reduce them in every way possible as much as we can in order to allow people to continue in a way, a manner that is as safe as possible given the circumstances. So we assume a certain level of risk with risk mitigation, whereas with risk elimination, we assume no risk because we eliminate it. We sit tight until we're able to completely eliminate risk, but risk mitigation, we assume a certain level of, of risk we try to control for it as best we can. So some of the risk mitigation things that we put into place include hand washing, wearing masks in public, social distancing, um, all of those work together in order to eliminate as much risk as possible and to allow us to continue things in as normal a fashion and manner as we can. Certainly, this has been a pandemic filled with misinformation um, and theories, conspiracy theories, and all sorts of things that um, have added confusion, certainly, to the mix. But I want to assure you that that is not unique to this outbreak. As a matter of fact, conspiracy theories and misinformation have been part of pandemic history from the earliest known pandemics, which were um, prior to the coming of Christ. So we've been seeing this for a very long time, and it's not something that is um, completely alarming. As a matter of fact, 
with the Spanish influenza outbreak, we had um, denials, right? There was attempts at covers up. People didn't want to report the numbers because they didn't want anyone to know that they had it. That was particularly true also during bubonic plague. Significant efforts that people went to um, to try and hide the fact that people had bubonic plague or to keep it from being known because they didn't want they didn't want people to know they had it or that their state had it. During the Spanish influence of 1918, there were tons of theories that the Germans had released this um, in the around the world in order to improve their chances of winning World War One. There were theories that Bayer had released this secretly in order to boost sales. It was, I mean, just some um, some interesting conspiracy theories were out there. So this is very common. Psychologists tend to say that people will come up with or um, cling to conspiracy theories because they give you fast, easy answers. And generally speaking, in pandemics, there's not really much that's fast and there's not very much that's real easy. And so when you're looking for something that um, will give you a quick a quick, simple answer. Sometimes conspiracy theories are the easier route. So don't let it discourage you when you hear conspiracy theories. It has actually been part of pandemic history as long as we have been um, alive. In fact, there was an anti-mask league formed in the 198 during this 1918 Spanish influenza of people who did not want to wear masks and were protesting the wearing of masks and fines were associated with that. And we saw a lot of the things that we're seeing today. But here are some that might be a little bit dangerous. So I want to talk about those. First, gargling hot water does not get rid of the virus. The virus is not just sitting on the surface of your tissue waiting to be washed away or scalded away. It is down in the, at the cellular level, right? The virus invades into your cells where it's protected. And if it were just sitting on the tissue surface, it would be relatively easy for us to get rid of, but it is not. It burrows down in, in, into the cellular level. So gargling hot water is not going to be able to enter those cells. Tonic water doesn't cure you. Lemon water won't cure you. Again, those all resolve around the same concept that you need something that can get into the cells in order to affect the virus. Elderberry won't cure you, and some research has suggested that it actually could make the situation work worse. Laying in the sun will not cure you, but it certainly will make you feel better. And we do know that if you have a vitamin D deficiency, that you can actually, uh, that increases your risk of severe outcomes. So having enough vitamin D is important, but it's also important to note that you can get too much vitamin D. And so you don't want to just start taking vitamin D without consulting with a doctor first. Um, there isn't any evidence that it was man-made. This also is an extremely common um, conspiracy that happens during pandemics. And again, as I mentioned, during the 1918 pandemic, a lot of people believe that the German government actually made the Spanish flu and released it. As a matter of fact, at one point they said they had a camouflaged um, submarine that they used to release the virus all over the world. That's one of my favorites. But um, as is always the case when these suggestions are made, as part of epidemiological research, you we always 
look to see, does this virus behave in a way that would be expected? Does it behave in a way that is seemingly natural? And should we consider bioterrorism? That's a, a kind of a standard process that we go through in evaluating any pandemic. And certainly that process was done with this as well. And independent labs, three independent labs, the United States military, Homeland Security, lots of people um, investigated to see if the virus, if there was anything that would indicate that the virus was man-made or a biological weapon, and there was not. The other one is that it will just go away if we ignore it. As a matter of fact, early on in the pandemic, I heard a lot of theories about if we just wait in two weeks, it'll be gone. Like, let's just ignore it for two weeks. It'll go through the population. We'll get it. We'll all recover and it'll be fine after two weeks. Um, but viruses don't do that. Viruses cannot live outside of a host, meaning a body. They need to be inside somebody's body. Um, to replicate. They cannot live outside. So if you cough and the virus comes out of your mouth and lands on the desk, it can't live there for long and it can't multiply on the desk. It can sit for a minute and see if it's going to be picked up by someone, right? Somebody's going to walk by and touch it. Um, you're going to sit something down and then pick something up and touch your face, but it can't survive for very long outside of the body and it cannot replicate or duplicate outside the body. So it needs to be inside of a body. It needs the cell, it needs your cells in order to replicate. So the virus is gonna do everything in its power to be able to survive. And in order to do that, it's gotta replicate from person to person. Viruses will not just burn themselves out. That is not um, really how they work biologically. And so it's not going to just go away. We do have to take actions to try and help that process along. And herd immunity is also something that a lot of people have suggested. Herd immunity is actually a great thing. And it is the idea that once enough of us have immunity to something, then we protect the other people. This is a concept that is generally associated with vaccines and not typically just with um, viruses that we can catch multiple times. So there's not um, really any argument, supportive argument for this is a disease we can catch over and over, but if we just get it enough times, we will um, develop protection. I want to discuss and kind of give you a better understanding of herd immunity just so you feel comfortable with that. So in this image, you can see there are people that are three different shades, right? We have the blue, which are the people susceptible to COVID-19. We have the red, which are the people that are contagious, currently have COVID-19 and therefore are contagious. We have green, which are people who are immunized. So they can't pass it. So if we have enough people that are green, then the people that are red would not be able to pass the disease to the people that are blue. That's the idea of herd immunity. The problem is, or the question is with this particular virus, how do we get people to be green? Well, there's two ways. You can have a vaccine, which we don't have yet, or you can be immune, which is typically only going to last for a few months. 
and we don't know exactly how long that's going to last, but we think, again, about four months. So if you can turn green, so for that four months, you can be one of these green people protecting those around you, but that is not long-lived. And so that does not, um, it doesn't really work in the whole herd immunity um, scheme of things because we would never develop enough of the green to really protect all of those who weren't. So what has been the results of everything that we have done so far? Here's where we stand today, or as of 3 p.m. on October 2nd, the United States has 7.5 million cases. Globally, we've seen 34 million cases. The United States has seen over 200,000 deaths, and globally, we've seen over a million deaths. We talked a lot about epidemic curves at the beginning of the pandemic and we were gonna flatten the curve. I showed you the two um, shots of curves previously. Here I did a comparison between the United States and Australia. I chose these two countries because we're in the United States and I've been working with Australia um, on risk mitigation for the virus in parts of that country. And so these are the two that I am most invested in. But you can see here that our curves they have some slope to them, which is a great, great thing and I'm happy to see. When you flip through to daily new cases, you can see the UK has what looks like two waves, right? We've had a lot of conversation about the two waves, so there those are. And then you can see daily new cases in the United States. We really haven't had that same experience quite yet, although we certainly saw, um, you know, kind of a ramp. but not really what I would call two waves. And so here's some more results. This shows you prior to implementing lockdowns and quarantines early on in the um, pandemic and the effect of that. So you can see that the estimated number of people we were spreading it to was in the four to five range at the very beginning. And then after city lockdowns, traffic suspensions, that dropped. And then you can see when central quarantine came, there was a really significant drop off. And we stopped the spread from being every person that got it giving it to four or five to every person that getting it maybe transmitting it to one more, which is great. And that is exactly what needs to happen in order for us to be able to control the virus. Now, that's not to say we need to go back into quarantine, so don't misunderstand me, just to say that doing that in the beginning certainly did make a significant difference. Another thing that I wanna combat just real quickly before we talk about the directions that we need to go is what, how flu and COVID compare? Because of course there's been lots of comparisons. So just to give you some quick numbers, the flu season of 2017, 2018 was considered one of the worst that we've had in a while. And there were 61,000 deaths that year from the flu. In 2018, 2019, we saw 34,000 deaths from the flu. And in the last 10 months from COVID-19, we've seen 213,000. So you can see there is a significant difference between the number of deaths from COVID-19 and the number of deaths that we've seen from the flu in previous years in the United States.
And here is a comparison between them. As we're heading into flu season and people are um, going to, it's easy to have confusion between um, flu symptoms and COVID symptoms because they are fairly similar. I won't go through this whole chart, but the thing that I will point out, because I think this was is a significant help, is that symptoms for the flu come on gradually over one to four days. So you'll start to um, feel the symptoms of the flu gradually, whereas um, the COVID will generally take a little bit longer to develop, but that fever will normally come on rather suddenly. Also, there is another virus that's kind of going around. It's just kind of a 24-hour flu thing. So that also is something that's really easy to confuse. People are tending to have this um, have a sudden fever that lasts for just 24 hours, and then they feel better. So that's creating some confusion with COVID as well. So unintended consequences, there certainly have been some. Anytime you implement strategies and um, mitigate risk mitigation or um, public health interventions, there are always what we call unintended consequences, which are things that happen, consequences of our intervention that weren't what we were aiming for. And so here you can see a list of fairly significant consequences. Suicide rates are up, domestic violence is up, child molestation is up, food insecurity is up, educational inequality is more significant or more severe. Poisonings are up. A lot of it is from people drinking hand sanitizer in an attempt to um, clear their self of the virus. It, that does not work. Um, 911 calls are down. Even though people need 911, they're not calling because they're concerned about COVID-19 or contracting it through that process. And people are dying in their homes at a much higher rate than what we have seen in the past. So these are all significant issues that have come about as a result of COVID-19. Alcoholism is up, um, drug abuse is up, drug overdoses are up. So where do we go from here? This is a lot of things that have happened, a lot that we have done, a lot that we have learned. But where do we go from here to get to the next place? Again, risk mitigation is an important part of that. So establishing criteria of being able to identify the threats, figure out ways to manage those so that we can reduce our risk, helping people to identify their own personal risk and their level of risk acceptance. So if you're high risk, you probably are not going to have the same level of risk mitigation activities that somebody who's low risk would have. It's gonna look a little bit different for you for a while, or at least it should. So here are some of the things, testing, right? We still need to get perfect the testing and make that something that is available um, widespread. <clears throat> We need to improve our contact tracing. We've had quite a few bumps with contact tracing. Um, focus quarantine, and when I say that, I mean if you have known exposure or we're in the midst of testing because you have symptoms or we know that there's a real problem in a particular county, then focusing in on that area as opposed to more widespread quarantining. Um, wastewater testing, we've seen tremendous progress with wastewater testing and the ability to identify um, ahead of time that there's going to be a surge in a particular area. And of course, we're working on the vaccine and have implemented protocols for social distancing.
There are four vaccine options currently in development. AstraZeneca, Pfizer, and Moderna are all working on a, a messenger RNA vaccine based around a two-dose vaccination. Um, and those vary in 21, from 21 days apart to four weeks apart. AstraZeneca's is currently on hold um, due to some negative side effects that were experienced by a couple of participants. Johnson & Johnson has taken a slightly different approach with a one-dose vaccine, um, and that's based on a live attenuated virus, so that's a little bit different. These are certainly different approaches. There are no commercially available um, RNA vaccines. There are, are vaccines against RNA viruses. That's a different thing, but we don't have any commercially available um, vaccines that are RNA vaccines. So it'll be interesting. This will be a huge, a huge step for vaccination pro the vaccination program um, once we have this developed. Where do you go to learn more? In order to learn more, there's tons and tons of places. Here's some places where you can track numbers. Everybody kind of has their own favorite place to go and track numbers, but I just put together a list of some of the, those that people like, depending on what you're looking for. And then there's places you can go to learn more. The CDC, World Health Organization, um, SIDRAP has trainings. All of these have interactive training, some of which you can get CEUs for. So it's a great resource to go. They're putting out new stuff all the time. And these are really good options um, if you want to do some additional learning in the area of COVID. We have steps forward, right? This virus won't last forever. None of them ever have. So statistically speaking, it's in our favor that this will be, we will eventually get our arms around this. It's just a matter of how long it's gonna take. And so there are some practical things that we can do to keep ourselves safer and to expedite that process. And they involve wearing masks when we're out in public or around people that we're not commonly around, um, washing our hands frequently, leaving distance between ourselves and others, particularly strangers, doing activities outside more than inside when we can, and um, just using some, some common sense protocols in regards to those things. It doesn't mean that you can't be around people. It doesn't mean that you have to be isolated and alone. There is certainly a lot of trouble right now with people feeling isolated and alone, suffering from depression and anxiety. And that is, again, an unintended consequence of this experience. But it isn't, it doesn't need to be that way. You, it is safe for you to see and interact with people. It is safe for you to um, have short visits with people who have also been taking standard precautions. So I hope that you have found this helpful and I look forward to your questions.